If you have your Bible, uh, would you open with me to Matthew chapter 5? We'll be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 3 this morning. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. God, this morning as we come before your word, we ask that you would lead us and speak authoritatively to our lives. Lord, our desire is not to come to a passage of Scripture and make sense of it in ways that give us comfort, but instead to make sense of it in ways that lead us to you. And so we ask this morning that from being led to you, we would be led into a place of comfort, not from explaining truths away in ways that make sense to us. We pray that you would lead us into all truth this morning. As we are here with your words, the very words of Jesus, would you teach us today? Would you speak amongst us? And may we listen and hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This morning is our, our first week in, in a, a time of our church's life that we're just going to be spending in the Sermon on the Mount. And so for about the next 10 weeks, we're going to handle the, the first portion of this sermon, and then we'll break from it. But, but for the next 10 weeks, we are here in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I think maybe you're thinking to yourself, Austin, why in the world would you preach sermons about Jesus' sermon? Why wouldn't you just read it as it is? Well, there's a couple reasons for that, but the first is, there's about 2,000 years between then and now and a lot that we don't get because we weren't the original audience. But second, uh, I think what's important for us is to ask the question, what was Jesus's intention behind preaching the Sermon on the Mount? Why did he give that to the church? Like, what was the purpose of it? Why the Sermon on the Mount? Why this passage of Scripture for our church in this season of our life, why this passage of Scripture for the church as a whole, why would Jesus sit on a mountain and preach this message? Well, in order to answer that question, I actually just really need the text to help me out. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, you know that there are, there are the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Old Testament, many people describe that as the, the season of life where um, this was God's covenant people in Israel, and the New Testament is is post-Christ. This is Jesus has come. He has come, and he has been a a what's the word I'm looking for? A signpost to the kingdom of God, a savior for the people of God. And so you have these two kind of testaments or covenants, as, as we'll so call that. We have the old covenant and the new covenant. Well, in the Old Testament, there was one great delivering act that happened in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt, and God delivers his people from slavery by a man named Moses. And in the New Testament, you have 
have an exodus as well. It's Jesus who comes to deliver his people from slavery to their sin, and he delivers them through a man named Jesus. In the Old Testament, as Moses delivers the people of God from slavery in Egypt, it culminates in the law given to them at Mount Sinai, where, where Moses comes to the people of God and he speaks God's words to the people on behalf of God. And then in Matthew, we have this text showing up. We have Jesus who shows up, revealing himself in the first few chapters of this book to be the prophesied Savior of all God's people. He's greater than Moses in a sense, who actually fulfills the law of Moses. And then in Matthew chapter 5, he starts out by seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. There's comparisons happening here. While Moses in the Old Testament descends from Mount Sinai to repeat God's words to the people of Israel, Jesus, the God-man who fulfills all of the Old Testament, shows up as God's word and he ascends a mountain to give that divine word to his people. Jesus shows up and he begins to teach his people what it looks like to belong in the kingdom of God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When I was growing up, my family fostered children. And one of the things that, that happened when we fostered children is, is children would have been for years a part of a different family. And then they would come to live with our family. And here's what happened when they would come to live with our family. They had culture and traits and things that they brought with them that didn't fit into the family. And what, what that didn't mean was they weren't a part of the family anymore. That didn't mean, hey, you know, sorry, you can't be a part of this family. You need to go live somewhere else. But what it meant was they had to learn what it, would, what it was like to be a part of the new family. They had to learn what it meant to be a part of that new family. This is what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus shows up and he's teaching his people what it looks like to belong in the kingdom. There's two errors that I think are common when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is to do what a lot of church history has done, and it's to, to take the Sermon on the Mount and, and use it as simply a sermon that shows us our need for grace. It, it, it just exists to show us how far we are from the mark, to show us that we have missed it, to show us that we need a Savior. That's the only purpose that many people believe this sermon exists for, and I believe that's an error. I believe it's an error because what it does is it creates Jesus simply as Savior, but it does not invite him into the position of Lord. It says we want the sermon for Jesus, but we don't want the sermon for his teaching. We don't, we don't want him as Lord. We don't want the, the actual ways of life that the sermon advocates for. And the second error that I think we often find ourselves is to come to this sermon and make it simply about rules and law. And we create a, a new legalism out of it. Essentially, we what we do is we would turn Jesus' words into something we try and keep outside of relationship with him. 
I think those are two errors that we can make with this sermon. One is to say, I I want Jesus as Savior, but I don't want him as teacher or Lord over my life. The other one is to say, I simply want the rules. I don't want Jesus at all. One is to simply take Jesus, but don't take the sermon. The other is to simply take the sermon, but leave Jesus behind. And I think both of those are, are errors when we come to this text. Both of them miss the mark. <laughs> See, the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, the beauty of the story of Scripture is that God pursues His people and in pursuit of His people, God the Son steps down off the throne of eternity and takes on human flesh. He lives a truly human life, leading us into all the righteousness that we would ever need. And His words in this sermon are not simply a law that points to our need for grace. And they're not a law that only shows us our own perfect righteousness that we can attain. We cannot take this sermon and leave Jesus behind. This sermon is a grace-filled command to obey his word within the context of relationship with him. He means what he says in this sermon. He means what he says. This is a picture Yes, it is a picture of a life that we can't live on our own. It is a reminder of the grace we need. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this sermon as the, the thing in the Bible that points us most deeply to our need for Christ. Like this sermon points us to a deep need for the Lord, but it's also a picture of what it looks like to live into what we say we believe. What we say we believe is that Jesus is bringing about an eternal kingdom that should shape and form the lives of its citizens. And this sermon invites us into a life lived under the happy, happy rule of God. If we were to follow this through, follow that line of thinking that this sermon actually should affect us, in verses 13 to 16, this text is going to push us outward. It's not simply an internal truth about the people of God, but it seems to move out. It seems to go out into the world. It implies that the people of God living out the realities of life in the kingdom will have preservative, they'll have renewing qualities to the world. When God's people live out the reality of God's kingdom in everyday life, it has a profound effect. So, what is the kingdom that we're talking about? We've mentioned this term multiple times, that this is what life looks like in the kingdom. This is the, the, the kingdom lived out in the people of God. This is an invitation for kingdom citizens. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is found in the gospel of Matthew to be a primary focus for him. In Matthew four seventeen, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew four twenty three, sa- it says, and he went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
Notice that phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Maybe you've been asked before, what is the gospel? Or maybe you've tried to explain to somebody what the gospel is. I'm willing to bet, for the most part, your first response wasn't, well, it's the kingdom. That word, the gospel, it means good news. It's pointing towards something. The gospel is the good news about the kingdom. And that's what Jesus shows up and he preaches. He preaches the good news about the kingdom. He comes as a herald. He comes also as a king to proclaim the good news about his coming kingdom. Great. We live in a democracy, Austin. What does that mean for me? What does the kingdom of God mean for me? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing is the good news, the the gospel that is proclaimed is about the kingdom of heaven, and that kingdom is found in Christ, and it is breaking through the barrier of heaven and earth. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the Lord's Prayer, and there's a term in that prayer, give us this day our daily bread and provision. I'm going to butcher it because I'm preaching. And so let me just read it for you so I don't butcher it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What is God, like what is the separation between earth and heaven that exists there? You see, the good news of the kingdom invites us into a profound recognition that we as a people, completely undeserving of grace, completely undeserving of the grace of God, we have royally messed up life and we desperately need to be rescued from our slavery to the way we have lived our life and we need our lives reordered into a whole new way of being. This sermon that Jesus sits down to preach is all about the kingdom and the way in which the people of the kingdom are reordered to God's right way of living in the world. Philippians 3.20 says that we are citizens in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Hear me, brothers and sisters, as we enter into this season of our life as a church, as we enter into this sermon series, there's something we absolutely need to grasp. If you are a Christian in this room, you are a citizen of heaven. That's where your citizenship lies. Here's what that means. Well, let me first say, here's what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is this world doesn't matter. But, but here's what that does mean. It means that your presence in this world is deeply shaped and formed by the reality of your primary citizenship which is in heaven. What Jesus is saying in this sermon intro is not, you need to be this. He is saying in this sermon intro, what you already are. You're part of the kingdom, and people who are part of the kingdom, this is who they are. Being leads to doing, never the other way around in the kingdom. Citizens, this is who you are. 
And he's saying that what you are is a blessed life. And just as God's kingdom is an already kingdom, it's also an all, it's a not yet kingdom. This reality that we experience currently citizens of heaven, currently called blessed, these are realities about us that are true and they are also things that are still being worked out in our lives that we will not see the fullness of until he returns. So what is the kingdom of heaven that we're citizens of? Why This phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If this sermon is about the kingdom, what is that kingdom? Well, I want to make note that right now we're starting in the middle of a conversation. So this happens to me often because I'm really nosy. But usually I'll like hear something said in another conversation in another room and I'll just try to like move over closer to try and understand what's actually being talked about. But I have no idea what's being talked about because I haven't been there for the whole conversation. And so I'm just confused, which is what we will be if we start our conversation about the kingdom of heaven right here, right now in Matthew chapter 5. Why? Well, because I don't know about you, but this is page 998 in my Bible, which means I have 997 pages that I have to account for for my interpretation of the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? How does that affect our reading here? Well, we need to start at the beginning. We need to go back to the beginning of the conversation. So in the beginning, everything, everything on earth was as it is in heaven. Let me unpack that. God was with his people. He dwelled with them. Things were in right, God was in right relationship with people. People were in right relationship with people. Creation was ordered and it was good. It was good. But after the first two chapters of Scripture, we're invited to see that there is a fall. It's a separation of God and humanity that happens because of the sinfulness of man. Man chose to rule their life outside of God's rule, and because they chose to rule their life outside of God's rule, man and God were separated. Not only were man and God separated, but there was also in Genesis chapter 3 a separation of heaven and earth. This is what Paul talks about when he writes Romans 8, and he says that creation has been subjected to futility. It is separated from heaven. Not only are we passing away, this creation is corrupted, and it is broken, and it is fractured, and what it needs is to be reoriented to its place as merged with heaven and earth as one. Back in the beginning. But they've been separated. Sin separates humanity and God and it separates heaven and earth. And separation from the kingdom of God leads to sin ravaging all things. In the garden, we see that creation is flourishing and humanity is flourishing. And after the fall, creation is fractured and humanity is fractured. It's broken. But God works to restore what's been separated. 
He works to restore his relationship with his people. He works to restore heaven and earth's unity. This place where God's rule is widely accepted, widely known, and widely lived under. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is a place where God's people live under God's rule, in God's world, in God's way. And in saying the kingdom is at hand, as Jesus begins to preach that, what he is saying is that he himself is the one who will reunite not only heaven and earth, but also our relationship between God and man. He will rework what's been separated. And Jesus, the word made flesh, God takes on flesh, and in that moment, heaven meets earth again. There's a separation, a reordering, a restructuring, a redemption. And he brings about the kingdom in in every way. He he steps out and he's like, is there sickness in the kingdom? No. Sickness healed. Is there suffering in the kingdom? No. Suffering taken care of. Is there storms in the kingdom? No. He calms the storms. And he begins to teach about what life in that kingdom looks like. like. In that kingdom, there's no false righteousness. In that kingdom, there's no hypocrisy. In that kingdom, there's no slavery. He invites people into freedom and into life. And then he lives this blessed human life, flourishing in his identity as the righteous one all the way to the cross where he, the righteous one, takes unrighteous punishment for the sins of the world to ransom his people and to inaugurate an eternal kingdom lived under his life and in his way. In his resurrection, he brings the realities of the kingdom to the people of the kingdom. There's no death in the kingdom. So what's the promise of Christ? Everlasting life. Life in the kingdom is a life lived under the salvation of the Lord and under the lordship of the Lord. In his resurrection, he brings those realities to us and we already experience those realities right now. And Jesus wants us to see that in the sermon that heaven is breaking through and in Christ and in his church, heaven is actually making moves on this earth right now. Jesus wants us to get that, that heaven and earth are no longer separated because we have been brought back in our relationship to Christ and the kingdom is breaking through. That's the invitation of the Sermon on the Mount that we would see what we will one day fully experience when Christ returns that all of this suffering and pain, all of it, all these broken relationships that we face, all of these these wicked things that we walk through, that we would see those things completely and fully redeemed and restored. This is what Colossians talks about when it says that he is redeeming all things to himself. He's restoring all of creation that heaven is breaking through. And the kingdom is doing that. And God's work in Christ and God's work in your heart right now is doing that. It's bringing the realities of the kingdom to bear on our life today, here and now. It's an already, we see that, and it's a not yet. So why the Sermon on the Mount? 
Because as kingdom citizens, it's vital for us to know what it looks like to live as a part of that kingdom and to live into the realities of that kingdom under this king. Jesus makes some striking statements in this sermon. He's going to make statements about anger, and he's going to make statements about marriage, and he's going to make statements about your private life, and he's going to make statements about oaths and retaliation. He's going to make statements about anxiety. He's going to make statements about the way that you spend your money. He's going to make statements about the way you love your enemies. He's going to make statements even to you about how you respond to other people when you think you're more righteous than them. And all of that will confront us And so we have a question that we have to ask as we read through this sermon. Who is Jesus? If he's just a teacher, we take what we want and we leave what we don't. Or in the words of Scott McKnight, we domesticate his teaching to make it palpable. But if he is God, if he is Lord, if he is the Savior, then the words of this sermon bear weight on our lives in such a way that call us not into death, but into life in the kingdom and what that looks like for us. There's this word that we see over and over again in the beginning of this sermon. It's the word blessed, or maybe you have a translation that says happy. Our text today starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the sermon as Jesus opens. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, the first thing that we need to know is that life in the kingdom is a blessed life. Now, hold on to that statement for a second because it doesn't mean what you hope it means. Life in the kingdom is a blessed life. Now, you've heard that. You've probably seen it on a bumper sticker somewhere, live in the blessed life, whatever that means. It's probably some point to an American dream of some sort, a kingdom without a king. But that's not what this is talking about. There's two different types of blessing that show up most frequently in the New Testament, two different words that are used to describe two different things. One of them is like a form of praise or, or holy invocation. It's kind of like, man, you are blessed and highly favored kind of an idea. Like you have just been taken care of. You've been given good things. You are well off. That's not what this word is. Um, the word that's here is something different entirely. Uh, the scholar, the New Testament scholar, Jonathan Pennington, he writes an entire book called The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, and he spends 48 pages talking about the Greek interpretation of this specific word. I won't bore you with those 48 pages, but I'll kind of give you his conclusion and, and hopefully help you to, uh, to understand. The book is called The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, and he argues for the word blessed to be defined today by our word flourishing, or Maybe this definition is helpful for you. A whole person way of being in the world. A whole person way of being in the world. He continues on that idea in saying this. Human flourishing is the idea that encompasses all human activity and goals because there is nothing so natural and inescapable as the desire to live and to live in peace to live in security, love, health, and happiness. 
These are not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything humans do, both belief in religion and the rejection of it. Monogamous marriage and a promiscuous lifestyle, waging war and making peace, studying history and creating art, planting fields and building skyscrapers, all human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing individually and corporately. So here's maybe a better way of saying what this word means. Successful are the poor in spirit. Successful are those who mourn. Successful are the meek. But that's kind of countercultural, isn't it? (laughs) That doesn't make sense to us. Man, one of my favorite things is to hear parents talk about their kids. Specifically, hear parents talk about how proud they are of their kids. And you know what? I, like, I hear a lot of people talk about their kids at college or their kids and their careers that they're taking or how they're doing in school. And here's what I just never, ever hear parents say. I am so proud of my kids. They are so poor in spirit. <laughs> I just, man, little Johnny, he wakes up every morning and he mourns. It's, I'm so proud of him for that. He is so successful. He's so meek. I just never hear that. I never hear that. Why? Because our, our culture's trained us to talk about our kids more in ways like this. Man, look at, look at the job they just got or the grades that they've just received and look at how awesome they're doing in life. They just got a new raise. They're actually going to take me to Mexico next week. It's awesome. Um, I need to, that's just prophesying for my children in advance. Um, no, that, because that's, and those aren't bad things. I'm not, I'm not trying to point out like, oh, these are terrible things. We shouldn't hope our kids have good lives. That's not what I'm asking for. But that's not the definition of success that Jesus gives us here. And it's not the definition of success in the kingdom of God. It's very countercultural. And if we're honest with ourselves, that really rubs up against our way of life right now. Jesus seems to think that the life of poor in spirit, of those who mourn, of those who are meek, of those who are persecuted, what? That that is the successful life. Like, what do we do with those? What do we do with that? That that this is Jesus' definition of a successful life. I'll just be honest, the temptation for me is to explain them in a way that adjusts them to my life. Like one of the dangers of this sermon, as Scott McKnight says, is to domesticate Jesus and make his words palpable. (laughs) That's one of the dangers for us is to just change these words into things that make sense for us and make us feel good about ourselves. Yet, in the words of Jamin Roller, Jesus doesn't speak this picture of flourishing and offer this picture of success so that we would adjust his words, but so that his words would adjust us. So that his words would adjust us. And this is a problem for us because here's how our culture would define success. If, if, if the leadership gurus of our day were to rewrite the Sermon on the Mount in their own words, here's what they'd say. Successful are the rich who never have any needs. 
Successful are those who are happy and have never lost anything. Successful are the strong and powerful who have made it happen for themselves. And that's quite different from what we're reading here, isn't it? That's quite different from what we're reading here. This means that the life lived in the realities of the kingdom of God is going to look a bit odd to those who are living their lives for the kingdoms of this world. But in the words of the great St. Augustine, let the proud seek after and love the kingdoms of the earth, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way Eugene Peterson interprets this specific passage of Scripture. He, he says it this way, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Here in this verse, Jesus is talking about not just poverty, which as this verse has been co-opted and used for. This is not Jesus just simply talking about poverty. This is Jesus talking about a poverty of spirit a complete and utter helplessness of spirit. Blessed are those who are completely and utterly helpless. Blessed are those who are at the end of their rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. This is alluding to Isaiah 61. It's a passage of Scripture pointing forward to the day when God will have favor upon his people, where, where there will be a day where the Lord's favor is brought, when he will bring about a righteous renewal to the earth through the ministry of his servant king. And Jesus is pointing back to that, saying the good news to the poor in spirit is found in me. Poverty of spirit is the doorway to the kingdom. Poverty of spirit is the doorway to the kingdom. Let's, let's re reframe this. Let's reframe this text. Successful are the spiritually needy. What? <laughs> like that does not make sense at all. Successful are the spiritually needy. I don't know about you, but I typically run from needy people, which is why I'm constantly trying to distract myself from the voices in my head. It's not saying I'm crazy. It's just I'm very needy. <laughs> like, uh, I woke up this morning at 5.15, or I woke up this morning at 4.30, hoping that I would have a couple hours just in solitude, and at 5.15, I heard daddy, and that's what I heard for two hours after that. <laughs> and I'll just be honest, that messed with me. Why? Because needy is not a, like, that's just a frustrating term to me. <laughs> And yet, here in this text, what, what is a just marker for the people of God? Successful in the kingdom are the spiritually needy. <laughs> Should that not say successful are the spiritually independent? Those who need nothing. No. Successful are the spiritually needy. Those who have need. Then this 
points us to the story of the kingdom. The, the story of the kingdom is a fractured, broken, separated from God humanity, separated from God world, where all of us are in spiritual poverty, a complete inability to see and to know God. And what Jesus wants to get at in the beginning of this sermon is that when we identify with that, we are well on our way to recognizing the righteousness that exists outside of us in the person of Christ who welcomes us into his kingdom of spiritually impoverished people being reordered to a fullness in Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says the Sermon on the Mount is about being filled with all the fullness of God in Christ Jesus, but in order to be filled, you must first be emptied. We are weak. We are weak. And the opening statement of this sermon makes a promise to weak people like you and me that you're not further off because of your inability. You are actually closer than you realize. By the grace of God, you and I have been brought to the end of ourselves. And God speaks to us in that place, inviting us to recognize our need and to come to him in our weakness. And he grants us what we need to obey him. Need is not the doorway to getting inside and then we muster up enough willpower and make it happen for ourselves. Need is the state of being that we exist in as a people. This should create in us a culture of humble dependence. A culture of humble dependence where we are no longer a people who think we've got this. No, but we actually recognize how much we don't. <laughs> but we know the one who does. We know the one who does. Since he's in here, I'll try and use my words carefully to not embarrass him. I, I had a parenting conversation yesterday with my oldest. And he, um, he and I... We were just struggling a bit. I had to hang some stuff up for my wife, which is the most sanctifying thing I do. Um, it brings out a frustration in me that nothing else does. And, and he wants to help, and, and he's a helper. And so I struggle with that. I struggle with that. And, and, and he, he was struggling with patience, and I was struggling with patience. And so um, instead of just having a, a fight, we went to the other room and we sat together and, and we just had a conversation about the fact that God actually wants to help us when we're impatient. Like he actually wants to help us when we're impatient. And I just, this had to have been the Lord working through me because I don't actually think of that in my own life very often. <laughs> Like often I'm like, I'm impatient and I figure out, oh man, I'm just feeling so guilty. But instead of just, man, Lord, I need you. I just, man, I'm struggling right now. I desperately need you to give me patience. And guess what the Bible says? That God actually wants to answer those prayers by giving us patience. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The evidence of the Spirit working in you is that he starts to build those things in you when we come to him bringing our need, recognizing our desperation for the grace of God in our humility that we are poor in spirit. Guess what he says? Kingdom of heaven is yours. Yours. 
Who gets the kingdom? Successful are the poor in spirit. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. What a beautiful thing that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of those who have gotten it together. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of people who impoverished in their need. Come to the one who can provide so much more than we even thought we knew we needed. And he delights to answer those prayers. He delights to give us in our need the grace that will sustain us. God delights to answer. What might it look like in our lives if in our need we didn't continue to scramble for the meager crumbs of self-justification, but instead leaned heavily into our need, calling out to our King who delights to answer our prayers of dependence upon Him? I think it would create a culture of humble dependence that should be a marker for us as a people. The kingdom is marked by people who are humbly dependent upon the king. And that, that doesn't look like three keys to success outside of successful are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Let him struck by that, that phrase to, to not domesticate it and make it palpable. Let this shape and form us. God, we ask that your word would go out amidst your people and that as a people, we would be shaped and formed by these words that the kingdom, the good news, would shape our culture in such a way that heaven goes out into the city. Lord, we have, we have many, many weeks left in this sermon series and, and yet it, it just grips me every time we come to this text, every time I come to this text, that the intention of this culture is that it would be a culture that goes out and has preservative and renewing power on the world. Lord, not a, not a culture of our own strength, a culture of our need, of humble dependence upon you. Lord, help us to know that our need is not something you run away from. It's something you move towards. That when we are at the end of our rope, it means more of you and less of us. More of your rule, less of our own wisdom, more of your way, less of ours, that you increase and we decrease. We ask that you would do that work, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.